Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. to another episode of Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. My name's Joe Haddo and I'll be the ringmaster for the upcoming War of the Words, which will ensue between two writers a little later on before we meet our fabulous guests. A little bit of admin to get through. Firstly, hello to any new listeners joining us. We're thrilled to have you with us and hope you'll become a regular of the book offs and of course a big hello and a big thank you to all our loyal regular listeners who've been with us since the early days the dawn of time you know who you are and we love you uh, thanks also to everyone who's been kind enough to leave us a review on apple podcasts it's so nice to read them most of them and see what you think and if you listen via the podcast app on your iphone and can spare us 30 seconds we'd love you to leave us a review there as well authors are also Uh, Very much encouraged to do the same. Finally, I just wanted to mention another bookish podcast that you might like. I mean, don't replace this one with with this one, but I've been enjoying it recently and I think you will too. It's called On the Road with Penguin Classics. And in each episode, my old mucker Henry Elliott visits a different literary location with a guest for a relaxed and entertaining conversation. Uh, So check it out. So then... To business, and today, as ever, I'm joined by two fabulous authors who are going to be telling us about their books, their writing, what they've enjoyed reading recently, and of course, we will do the book off at the end of our podcast. My first guest is the author of the highly acclaimed young adult novel, The Miseducation of Cameron Post. She has an MFA in fiction from the University of Montana, a PhD in English from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and she's here to tell us all about her new adult novel, Plain Bad Heroines. It's Emily M. Danforth. Welcome to you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And hello. You've got far too many qualifications to be on this podcast, Emily. I tell you that. <laughs> the, yeah, the, <laughs> in, I, when, you, when people read the PhD, I still wonder how anyone ever gave that to me. <laughs> well, doctor, we'll find out a little bit later. Uh, and my second guest is a journalist and an editor who moved to the UK from Germany to work as a carer before the urge to write 
brought her to journalism. She's worked all over the world, but has always returned to London because there's no better place to find a good story than the top deck of a bus. I couldn't agree more. Here to tell us about her debut novel, The Long, Long Afternoon, it's Inga Vesper. Hello. Hello there. Thank you for having me. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you both for being here. Uh, the 38 bus is a favourite of mine, Inga. Mm, I'm on the 65 a lot. Yeah, I miss... Do you know what? say I, that's the best one. I have to say I'm, I'm sort of weirdly missing being on the bus in this uh, lockdown pandemic-y time that we're living. I just haven't been on a bus for... Well, probably a year now. I know. It's just, it's the perfect place to kind of just let your mind wander. And now I have to like seek out spaces where I can just not do anything. Being on a bus is the perfect excuse to just <laughs> not do anything at all. <laughs> Got a big bus culture in Rhode Island, Emily? Um, yeah, I, better better uh, busing than um, many other states, I'll say that. Cause I think partly just because we're such a small state. So you, you can. It's just that, you know, it's, it's it takes 45 minutes to drive from one end of the state to the other, but like two and a half hours to take a bus. So, right. Um. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk first about your new novels before we find out uh, about what books you're putting up for the, for the book off. And I've read these and thoroughly enjoyed them this week. Um, Emily, Playing Bad Heroines... It's hard to miss, isn't it? Because this front cover that you've got is pretty striking. <laughs> yeah, they did a remarkable job. <laughs> and it's so different than the US cover, which I really love, which feels much more sort of traditionally um, gothic. And this is just um, such a such a bright... Um, some, someone described it as uh, one of the characters in the novel is uh, the lesbian Harper Harper. And someone said to me recently, this is definitely a Harper Harper cover. <laughs> and I think I think that's right. It feels right. This is sort of like yellow pinks. It's very it's very bold. It's sort of it's amazing, really. And yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, I'm, I'm, sort of, I'm, I'm glad that, that we in the UK have owned that cover. <laughs> but although I'm sure your US <laughs> one is very nice, too. <laughs> and I'd describe the book a sort of modern gothic horror would that be fair uh yeah i think i think that would be i think um maybe meta gothic horror would be Mm -hmm. the word that i would change there but yeah absolutely yeah so tell us about this story then and about brookhant school for girls well, I think, you know, there's a there's sort of it was a joke that I made about the novel that's become, I think, more useful as, as a tagline to describe sort of this big, messy novel, which is that it um, Plain Bad Heroines is essentially Picnic at Hanging Rock plus the Blair Witch Project times lesbians. Um, and and I think I think that like is, is pretty it's pretty true uh, in terms of what the novel is. It's roughly divided between um, two time periods, um, one right around the turn of the 20th century. 1902-ish, um, at a boarding school for girls in Rhode Island that seems to be under the grips of a curse um, related to a very real memoir um, by a writer named Mary McLean. Um, and so that's roughly one of the time periods of the novel is following that book and the curse as it passes hands through the students. The present day or near to present day uh, a timeline of the novel follows the making of a cursed horror movie um, that's about that that curse and is filming at at Brookhaunt's and and obviously the the two stories intersect and reflect and um, comment on, on each other 
uh, you know, for 600 pages. But that's it's, 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 that's that's the roughest way I can kind of tell you. Um, it's also a, a gothic novel that's uh, uh, very uh, has has tongue firmly in cheek, as Vincent Price used to say sometimes. So it's very aware. It's a gothic novel that is very aware that it's a gothic novel. Yes, I think that's a per- that's the perfect little summation at the end there. Um, very good. Uh, and Inga, let's talk about the long, long afternoon. Another. A beautiful front cover, I must say, just slightly subtler than Emily's this one, though, I think. <laughs> yeah, so it does have a lot going on. So if, um, uh, you know, it, it, it depicts a, a 1950s kitchen um, with a sort of sun streaming in through the window, but there are a lot of little things wrong with this kitchen. And I think <laughs> it's very exciting. I've heard from a lot of people who have read the book and then went back to look at the cover and they spot all of these little clues that, pertain to things that happen in the story that are not quite obvious when you first look at it so i think it's a cover that you know has a lot to give in a way oh i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to re-look at it then aren't i i'm gonna have to inspect it a little bit further (laughs) (laughs) and in this novel you transport us to the uh, late 50s and to the trimmed lawns of sunny california but can you tease us a little bit uh, about what this story is yes of course it starts with the disappearance of one of those Perfect 1950s Californian housewife. Some, her name is Joyce Haney. She's got two beautiful children. She lives in a beautiful house. She's got a loving husband. And one day, um, her cleaner arrives to find that she is missing. There is a blood stain in the kitchen. The kids are alone at home. Um, and nobody knows what's happened to her. And the detective who is tasked with the case very quickly runs into a lot of dead ends because there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with her life. And she lives in this perfectly safe, perfectly wonderful neighborhood. But Ruby Wright, the cleaner, knows a lot more about what's going on in this neighborhood. However, she is an African-American woman from South Central. And for her, the police are the problem and not the solution. And the last thing she wants to do is get you know, in trouble over something that happened to her white employers. So those two characters, the detective and Ruby, have to come together to solve the mystery of what happened to Joyce. But then throughout the novel, we do hear from Joyce as well about... The, the day that she disappeared and all of the things that happened. That gives you some clues as to <laughs> what might have happened to her. Now, regular listeners to this podcast know how much I wang on about California. And they're probably thinking right now, oh, Joe, shut up about LA and wine country and all that business. But I do love California. And there's something quite intoxicating about 90s, 50, 1950s California, especially, I would say. Um, I, I want to ask you in a moment, Emily, as our resident American, about that. But first, Inga, <laughs> what drew you to this particular time period? Okay, I'm going to have to make a horrible confession here now. I have never been to California. <laughs> <laughs> I think Emily's going to knock me over the head. So. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> so It um, just shows how enchanted you are from afar. Right? <laughs> exactly. California. <laughs> and I think that's it because it just symbolizes this sort of this traditional, you know, the American dream that we have of the open skies and the highways and the palm trees and everything is sunlit and beautiful mm. and technicolor and and actually for me there, there is something quite dark underneath all of that perfection and I wanted to scrape away I mean you know I wanted to write a book about I wanted to write you know a thrilling crime novel but one that had sort of feminist um, elements in it and that looked be, below, beyond the surface of these perfect lives and 
California, this is the perfect place to set it because it is so present in all of our lives. And, you know, to kind of yeah, scratch away at that dream a little bit was just a lot of fun. There was a, there's a slight sort of, um, I don't know, like if you've seen Mulholland Drive, the David Lynch film, there's, there's that sort of shimmer on the surface of LA specifically in California but then there's this darkness underneath and I feel like that's what you were sort of getting out of your the pages of this book and the chapter it was that there's it seems shiny and good but actually underneath it's all a bit twisted <laughs> yeah it's exactly because a lot of the you know the, the 1950s we look we often look back at this age with a sort of you know a lot of nostalgia but actually it was a really really dark time for a lot of people it was a horrendous time for African Americans it was a horrendous time for many women sexism was absolutely right women weren't allowed to do the most basic things and I think we forget about that we forget that all of that kind of you know glamour and perfection was built on some very very horrific foundations and that's what I really wanted to explore yeah have you have you been to California Emily are you uh are you a fan like me I am a fan and I have been um, several times and I think that I, you know, I, I grew up, I'm sure, you know, I don't, I don't know that it is hearing both of you talk at all uniquely American, also romanticizing, um, particularly Hollywood, right? Yeah. And sort of the, the idea of what's possible there, the 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 shimmer of the, of the sky and the palm trees. But I, um, you know, I, I've come to really appreciate, I think, when I've gone and, and specifically sort of parts of L.A., um, uh, uh, you know the the, stri- the things that people that live in California complain about <laughs> the traffic <laughs> and the stri- you know I th- there's something that um, that feels just very authentic I guess about the experience and I've never I've n- I think probably because I've always been in tourist mode I've never visited and not loved my time in California so and it, it shows up actually in my novel as well um, with characters who are, are visiting LA for the first time and and or at least one and are kind of um, enchanted and simultaneously dubious about um, (laughs) the glitter. Uh, Very aware. Yes, very aware indeed. But you, as we established, you live in Rhode Island, so you're on the East Coast. Um, But Mm -hmm. you're by the sea, aren't you? You're by the water. Yes, yeah. yeah. Rhode Island is the ocean state. So yeah, and that was something that I really, um, place plays a a significant role in in Plain Bad Heroines, um, as it does in so many Gothic novels. And I wanted to establish that in this tiny state, um, the Brookhans estate, which contains both a boarding school and and, um, a house, this manor house, uh, feel very isolated, which is something that, that the both the historic characters and the contemporary characters kind of comment on how, right, in tiny Rhode Island can there be a place that sort of seems far away. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think that when we talk about haunted New England or gothic New England, Rhode Island often gets overlooked for Vermont and Massachusetts, <laughs> and I'm, I'm staking my claim that, that Rhode Island's got plenty of ghost stories too. Yes, fantastic. Because actually... I hadn't really thought about it until just now and you speaking about it, but I wonder if... I don't know if a sort of ghost gothic story, especially when you're talking about, you know, that remoteness that you need, that isolation that you need to sort of conjure up. I don't know if you could set something like that in, well, certainly not LA or London, just because there's people everywhere. (laughs) Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you'd have to figure out a different way to isolate someone, right? I mean, <laughs> the pandemic has provided plenty of those. But yeah, it would it would be a different kind of isolation, certainly. It wouldn't be, you know, miles to drive to the nearest neighbor. So, yeah, yeah, yeah true. Yeah. <laughs> and 
Was it a specific choice for this novel to be for adults? Because obviously you, you've previously written YA fiction. Did yeah. Did the story lend itself to being an adult novel or did you plan it? I didn't. I didn't know. Um, my people, you know, ask where where does the novel come from? And really, the, I started with this idea. I've always been um, a, a fan of of cursed films, right? They're supposedly cursed films. Sometimes the marketing department is the biggest part of the curse, but I've always been really <laughs> interested in them. And they and they tend to accumulate much more around horror films, right? This idea that there was some malevolent force on set keeping keeping a film from being made. And so I wanted to write about the making, essentially, of a of a cursed. Um, a cursed horror film and a queer horror film that would you know be sort of expressly queer and and when I was conceiving that novel it was going to be YA and it really was going to follow younger characters on set um, you know sort of hopping heads amongst three of them making that that movie but in answering for, for myself really just as the novelist why the location they were making this movie at was haunted um, and trying to figure out what, what the curse was, I became more and more enamored with, with doing, you know, sort of Gilded Age research into women's colleges and boarding schools. And um, and became it became pretty clear to me that, that I wanted to put that material in the book. And it, it wasn't going to be whatever the other novel I thought I was going to write, you know, was. And, and at that point, um, partly because the, the characters I wanted to follow were... Um, not just students, but the women that run the boarding school. It just, mm. for all kinds of reasons, it was, you know, it was evident it was no longer a YA novel. But that was, you know, really, I'm, I'm a slow novelist, and that was a years-long process. <laughs> you know, it wasn't something that I worked out in a couple of weeks. So <laughs> Didn't just kind of go, oh, yeah, no, I know what I'm doing. I'm not right. writing it this way. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what of, uh, did you did you have you know, film nights for research where you were watching some of these horror films? Um, oh, well, yeah, I mean, I didn't have to, <laughs> that's just my life um, regularly, <laughs> so that I didn't have to do sort of special research horror nights. Um, that's that's what my weekend looks like, much much to my wife's unhappiness, who does not like horror movies at all, so I have to like, sneak them on my laptop, but she'll come in the room and doesn't even want it, like, on my laptop, um, but... Uh, but yeah, I, I did that, but I also, um, you know, I read Turn of the Century Ghost Stories. I really steeped myself, um, obviously, in Henry James, but also Edith Wharton. Um, and the book that's mentioned, you know, that I mentioned Mary McLean's memoir, um, that, that plays a much more significant role throughout throughout the novel than I thought it was going to. And just a little background, because it's criminally underknown, unfortunately. Um, Mary McLean was a 19-year-old living in, in Butte, Montana, this, this mining town, when she set out to write, essentially, what she called her portrayal, um, which is this very confessional kind of look at her life as a, as a teenager in Butte, Montana at the turn of the century. Um, and she beseeches the devil throughout it. She originally wanted it titled, I Await the Devil's Coming, and, and asked the devil to come and rescue her from this barren, you know, wasteland of Butte, Montana, and she also lusts after her her high school teacher, a woman, Fanny Corbin, um, throughout it, really in, in in pretty explicit prose again for you know turn of the twentieth century. Um, and her wish came true. I mean, I couldn't have I couldn't have made this story up. The exact thing she wanted the memoir to do happened, which is that it was published and she became an overnight sensation. It sold um, hundreds of thousands of copies. It received you know um, press in like sort of every newspaper in the country at a time when when you know every town had five newspapers. Um, and not, you know, often not good press, right? Although there, she had certainly her fans, but it really lifted her up out of obscurity. 
um, and and um, made her a sensation for a time. You know, sort of. Um, you know, I've heard her described as kind of like the first influencer, right? Or like an early right. kind of um, pop star in that way. So uh, that book plays a role as well, um, a much larger role than I initially thought that it would. So Yeah. Ah, fantastic. Um, what about you, Inga? Um, we've mentioned buses as a good place to get ideas from. Where did the inspiration for this story come from? Ooh, um, not allowed. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to mention this on a podcast, but I was very bored at work one day and I like to look at, as I'm a journalist, I like to look at, you know, stuff on the internet. And um, so what you do is you go to Wikipedia, you look at what's on the front page, see if there's anything interesting. And I came across the disappearance of a movie star called Dean Spangler. I think she vanished in 1956 or something. And, you know, you go to the bottom of the article and there's a list, like Wikipedia does. It says list of people who vanish mysteriously. So I thought, well, that sounds interesting. Let's have a look. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and I, it's, it's a list that starts with sort of someone who vanished in, four, in the year 4000 BC and goes on from there. Oh, my and what gosh. what I noticed, <laughs> you know, it's incredible. There's thousands of people who just vanish without a trace. And what I noticed scrolling through the list was that from from the year 4000 BC until about the 1940s, there were always men and they vanished whilst exploring the Amazon or fighting some war or doing some sort of, you know, looking for El Dorado. Um, and then from the 40s and 50s, especially in the 50s, you start women going missing and the suspicion is almost always that they were murdered. And I looked at this and I thought, this is so depressing. Men vanish whilst furthering humanity and women get killed. And that sort of I don't know for some reason it completely inspired me in a way um that I felt like I, I want to look into these women who went missing in the 50s and see what was going on um so that was really uh like one big piece of inspiration for me and then the other thing is that I used to work at the coroner's court it was one of my first jobs as a journalist and um which is uh for international readers which is a, a court where the the cause of death is established so if you find a body not clear why that person died go to the coroner's court and so I used to sit there for days and just watch cases after case after case and the families are usually there and so when someone has just died in your family that's obviously it's it's a, it's a really extremely emotional time and reacting like watching families react to the news of someone you know a loved one dying under suspicious circumstances that was really interesting um and some of those cases went on to become cases of crime um and so just being able to, to observe that was extremely fascinating for me. And because what you see is that a lot of these families, you know, things have been going wrong for many, many, many years, but often things were not addressed. They weren't spoken about. So um, you could kind of tell, you know, the, the death of a person sometimes was the culmination of many, many years of secrecy among people who were very, very close to each other and, you know, married or brothers or something like mm. that. And I, I kept wondering, how could that happen that people live together and are so close and yet have these terrible secrets? And so that was another inspiration for the book. <laughs> I think uh, it's perfectly fine to be a little bit bored at work and go searching for you know a bit of inspiration, <laughs> wouldn't you say, Emily? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. And I'm thinking like you, you mentioned that list of a hundred names or hundreds of names. I mean, I'm thinking you might like there's probably what, six more novels in there, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, yeah. you know, you've sort of dug one out, but I'm you know, immediately the novelist in me is going, Huh, that sounds like a great list. That sounds really useful. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it, it would you say it's it's true 
certainly of a, a journalist, Inga, but Emily also of novelists, you know, when you do stumble across a story or a character or even just like the germ of a story, you as a storyteller are, really want to know more about it. And that is where, you know, so often great stories, great novels come from. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very true. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think that you're not, I mean, I think for me, it's usually a a desire to ask more questions, right? If something seems particularly interesting, I I want to, um, I assume that I don't, that that I've only seen part of it, right? If I'm thinking of it, like like you read something on a news feed or something, um, and that asking more questions then leads you down rabbit holes that, yeah, where where, where you find stories. So certainly... And I think it's that, that just that need to know to continue that story. So, you know, I wanted an answer to all of these women who went missing in the 50s. I felt like I, I want to know what happened to you because, you know, no one ever found out. And so um, it was just very interesting to then sort of spin that story further in your mind and kind of feel like you can, you know, you, I mean, it's all made up, obviously. It's not it's not an answer, but just to explore that phenomenon even and, and you know, make up an answer to these one of these fictional women was quite satisfying. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Uh, I don't know if either of you have read Rachel Harrison's book. Um, it published last year, The Return. But it's it's uh, the the premise is that um, so it's a little more specific of a of a you know kind of unfortunate phenomenon of people that go missing while hiking or camping. Mm. Um, and there are certain areas in the country that just have tons of those where again, like no information, sort of never seen again. Um, oh yeah, and she I've, took I'm that never going to go to an American then... national park. <laughs> Oh no. Well some of them are very beautiful and you'll have a lovely time. But I, I understand. I understand I feel like I have my most patriotic defending the national parks. <laughs> okay, good, good. Um yeah, but she just took the premise of someone that happening. There's a group of college friends and one disappears and there's no, you know, hiking and there's no information. And then after two years the friend returns. That's hence the name the return. Mm-hmm. Um and it's and there's not a lot of information about, you know, um where exactly she's been. She's not able to provide much. It's a really you know, it's an it, it's an interesting premise and I think it's a really great novel. But um yeah, I mean I, it's it makes sense that so many storytellers are drawn to trying to answer those unknowns yeah and speaking of um books that you've read and enjoyed i always like to ask my guests about things they've been reading recently they don't have to be new books necessarily but it's always nice to have some recommendations from from you so uh inga have you been finding some time to read is there anything you know that you've read recently you'd like to to recommend to everyone Oh, yes, I have just delved into CJ Tudor, and I think she's a perfect author to mention. Um, Emily, I'm sure Emily's already fully aware of her, but if <laughs> oh, Emily's uh, readers yeah. will love CJ Tudor, she writes sort of, you know, g- gothic, mysterious, and setting weird stories that are set in, in the UK. Um, but uh, yeah, there's always, it, it's a bit, they're a bit, they're not necessarily crime novels, although crime is always involved or quite often involved. But then, you know, you sort of ask the story, continues something very dark and uncanny comes up and it's never quite clear whether it's you know a ghost or a spirit or some sort of malice and it is absolutely incredibly stunning and, and exciting and thrilling stories I really it's very very difficult to describe what a CJ Tudor book is to someone who hasn't <laughs> read one but highly highly recommended Oh, brilliant. Well, actually, um, Kaz was on this very podcast um, just oh, just brilliant. a few episodes ago talking about the Burning Girls, which is 
her latest one. Yes. And, um, we talked I shall about say no e- more then. Well, well, exactly. We can point people back to the uh, to the episode with CJ Tudor and Will Deed if you want to find out more about that. But I completely agree with you, Inga. Great, great novelist and some fabulous stories. Um, thank you for that one. And what about you, Emily? Anything you want to recommend? Absolutely. I um, I recently read Melinda Lowe's uh, young adult novel last night at the Telegraph Club. Um, and it's it's a work of historical fiction. It's set in the 50s in San Francisco, largely in Chinatown, um, against the backdrop of the 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 Red Scare. Um, and it's two you know high school students, two teen girls, and and their their romance story, really their their love affair um, with again this this very sort of racist backdrop. Um, and paranoid backdrop of the Red Scare at that time, uh, and and it and Melinda just did sort of phenomenal research for this book. Um, you see the, the world of drag bars and queer bars of San Francisco 1950s, and um, it's it's really just it's gorgeously written, um, and it's out in the states. It was out in the states in, in January, and I know it's going to be out in the UK in March. So it's Last Night at the Telegraph Club by Melinda Lowe. It's it's a, I, she's one of my favorite contemporary young adult novelists and. And um, I think this is her best book. It's just, it's so good. Fantastic. And great title as well. We love that. Hmm. And before we do the book off, I do want to ask about YA, actually, because I'm a huge fan of young adult literature, Emily. And I know that authors and readers and publishers and people in the publicity departments and, you know, everyone has a slightly different idea on YA and whether we should call it young adult, whether it makes any difference, really, if it pigeonholes it, if it doesn't, if we need it for marketing, if we don't. I personally think when I hear YA, young adult novel, I sort of know the the kind of novel that I will be reading. And yet I would not be put off by it if I heard that term. I just wonder what you, your thoughts on it are, because as a, as a fan myself of, of just reading YA, you know, I, I would recommend it to, to anyone if I read a good book. And I just wondered what you thought of the sort of constraints or non-constraints of, of calling it YA are. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that having that designation, I, I too am not, I'm not someone who thinks of it as a genre designation so much as a just a, a classification that yeah. tells me um, that, that that writers are writing about largely adolescent characters, um, and in some cases, in a much more pointed way, they are writing for adolescent readers, and and they're you know YA novelists that that talk a lot about that as, as a thing that's driving them. But I usually it's just a classification to know that that novel is going to be about teenagers, right? Yeah, um, or that that work of nonfiction is going to be about teenagers. And, and usually have some sort of elements of, of a coming-of-age novel. Um, but yeah, I, I think that there has been, there is sort of an unfortunate, maybe lingering essence sometimes of, of literary snobbery about YA that I, I still keep waiting for just to sort of explode and vanish because I think some of the most interesting novels published every year are young adult. And that's been true for a long time. It's not like this is something, you know, that's, <laughs> well, just in 2020 has this, this has been true for, for a long time now, right? It's not, it's not a recent phenomenon. So so um, I, you know, I'm, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like you. I, I move freely between young adult and and novels published for adult, and I don't really give a lot of thought about about that. But but I will say that YA is very useful, at least in terms of helping younger readers, right, find <laughs> yeah. books that reflect their experiences. And in that way, the, I think the designation does um, does matter, right, that they that, that, that more than ever, actually, that, that readers are able to see themselves on the page um, and know they can go to YA novels to do that. So 
Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the really important. Um, that's the really important part of it. Um, because I have to say, um, I've got strong feelings about this because I've often sort of passed or young adult has passed me by a lot because I thought, well, then it's not for me because I'm not really a young adult anymore. Um, but then every time I've read a book that was designated as YA, I found it hugely enjoyable. And I've been, I've been thinking, wow, I've been missing out on this whole like slice of yeah. <laughs> the literary world just because I thought, oh, maybe I'm just a bit, maybe this is just all about romance and I don't know, high school. <laughs> and actually, it really is not. So I wonder almost if we need, you know, a designation that's something like this is YA, but it means it's for adults also. <laughs> or like, I just I think, think we we just need more of us to loudly say, right? Yes, no, it's but, for you. It's for yeah. you. You don't have exactly. to change the title. It's I for everybody, you, right? and it can cover yeah. really, really deep and important themes. And then, you know, there's a Absolutely. thrilling, tasty stories, and it's nothing that's yeah. it's not at all like anything that's sort of dumbed down or something that you know no. young people wouldn't be ready for in fact it's quite the opposite i think there's a lot going on in ya that you know the, the classical adult literature world could you know mm. learn something from so absolutely yeah mm. it's a refreshing amount of honesty on the page yeah yeah <laughs> this there really is i think and it's just i think it um ya as do, as do children's books they sort of allow for the imagination of the author and the reader to really open up and one thing I was going to say, Emily, is I don't know about you or you, Inga, but when I pass on a YA book, if I'm recommending it, I don't actually mention that it's why I just go, I think you'd really like this. And in the case very recently of the latest Angie Thomas book, which is called Concrete Rose, um, you know, the, the person I recommended it to had no idea that it wasn't, a, you know, a book for adults and were really surprised when I said, oh, actually, it's a mm -hmm. YA novel. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I do. I do think there are readers that are really missing books that they would love, just because um, yeah. maybe snobbery is unfair. There are certainly some snobby readers, but sometimes I think it's just yeah, it's just oh well, those are those are books for younger readers, right? And um, I don't, you know, maybe for some of us too. I think it's thinking about um, not that there weren't great novels published for adolescents and younger readers when I was when I was younger, but I think maybe kind of you know you're an adult and you're holding on to to the memories of what you were reading, right? And you, I don't think they realize quite how expansive. Um, um, the world of young adult literature looks right now. So novels in verse, right? I mean, I just like how much uh, interesting work is there. So, yeah. So we're very much flying the flag for YA. Uh, and anyone yes. listening who's who's possible. thinking, oh, do you know what? I should really, I should really try some YA. Then um, Miseducation of Cameron Post is a pretty good place to start, isn't it? So maybe maybe we <laughs> okay. listeners should Thank get, you. get themselves a like coffee. You've done this before. Wow. <laughs> Way to slip that in there. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Right, it's time now for the book off. And this is where each of you gets three minutes to tell us about a book that you love, that you think that me and everyone listening should read. Um, first First things first, we need to decide who goes first and who goes second, and we need to decide who's getting uh, rung out by the bell and who is getting honked out by the bicycle horn. So, um, Inga, would you like Ooh, to go first? Or so? Oh, right. Oh, she, she's jumped in. You want the bicycle horn? Fine. She's taking it. That's it. That's it. Uh, Emily, that means you get the school bell, which is sort of um, appropriate, really, yeah. isn't it? I suppose. Um, I'm charmed by both, so I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> and would you like to go first or second, Emily? Um, well, I will. Def- I'll go second, and I'll let Inga go first. Okay, very good. Um, before we uh, hear your pitches, let's find out which books you're putting forward, Emily. Which one are you talking about? I am talking about *The Haunting of Hill House* by Shirley Jackson. Ooh, fantastic. And Inga, which book are you putting up for the book off today? I am talking about Random Family by Adrian Nicole LeBlanc. Alrighty, fantastic. Well, you've got three minutes. As I said, you don't have to use it all. But as soon as you hit the three minute mark, I'm going to be honking you out, Inga, and ringing you out, Emily, uh, to cut you off. So I'll keep quiet. And it's over to you, Inga, first. Three minutes on the clock to tell us about Random Family. So I think everybody needs to read Random Family by Adrian Nicole LeBlanc. It's a non-fiction book that deals with uh, teenagers who are dealing drugs in 1985 in the Bronx. And it especially deals with uh, the women, the girls, um, girlfriends of drug dealers and their lives. It's an amazing piece of reporting. So the author um, got to know these girls during a trial and then followed their stories for the next 15 years. So it goes up into the early 2000s. And it really is an incredible piece of writing because what uh, the author did, Adriana Colleblanc, she um, she got to know these women so well that she gave them recorders so they would just record themselves during their day. And uh, she did a lot of transcribing of these recordings and then wrote the book directly from their perspective. So Adriana Colleblanc, the author, is never actually in it. And she uses the way people speak, she uses their phrases, she uses Spanish and Latino phrases a lot, um, and so what you get is an account of what that life is like, this life of extremes, of extreme wealth and extreme poverty and extreme violence told directly from the point of view of the characters. And it's just an, an incredible tour de force um, and really, really important, I think, for uh, people to understand what poverty is like and what you know how it kind of holds you back and how your thinking changes. Um, with the the struggles that you are facing, um, I found it ex- like extremely insightful. Um, but then the writing style really helps you to, I think, it, it, you know, be directly there when these things happen and, and directly understand the actions of the characters. And 
for authors um, or for anyone who loves literature, that's an incredible tool to have because it really taught me so much about how you portray characters um, honestly and do it directly from their soul, I would almost say, rather than pretending to be some kind of bridge between you know, the character and the reader and pretending to explain too much. So um, it's just an absolutely stunning book. And I do think it really needs um, much more attention. And I think it flew kind of under the radar when it was first published. Um, But if you've ever, like, if you read any sort of true crime, if you read Truman Capote, if you read any of those, you know, big names, um, Adrienne Colleblanc is certainly one to watch. And uh, yeah, an absolutely incredible book. (laughs) Fantastic. Oh, I brought it in in just two and a half minutes, oh. a casual sort of two and a half minutes, Inga, good. just like, Ooh, yeah, I've nice. said all I need to say. <laughs> Love it. Uh, very good. Thank you for that. Take a breather. Have a rest. Um, I'm putting three minutes back on the clock for you now, Emily, to tell us about The Haunting of Hill House. Over to you. All right. So you've probably heard of The Haunting of Hill House, even if you haven't had the pleasure of reading it. Um, and I had, and, and I'll walk you through. I was in college. I'd been assigned the book. Um, it's, it's, uh, its premise, which is that a paranormal researcher gathers some strangers at a haunted house, supposedly haunted house, kind of um, uh, surrounded by some creepy hills, felt a little cliche to me, although I didn't know at the time. It felt cliche to me, largely due to Shirley Jackson making it a cliche. Um, And I thought that I was maybe a little smarter than this book. Um, And then found myself, and this is a common story with The Haunting of Hill House, beginning it in the afternoon, not being able to stop turning pages, feeling rather locked in the novel, but delighting in that, Um, and finishing it in one evening, which you can easily do. It's it's 180 pages. There is not a word wasted. Um, And then being too afraid to walk out of my dorm room down the hallway to the bathroom, um, really for, for the night until it became dawn and I felt safe to. Doing that. So if you're looking for a haunted house novel that delivers terror, that delivers the scares, everyone from Carmen Maria Machado to Neil Gaiman have named this as as the scariest novel they've ever written, if that or read, excuse me, if that's a thing that you're looking for. Um, but beyond that, I think that uh, Jackson's prose is just um, it's so restrained, I said economical earlier, and her insights into the characters, um, who I think easily could have just been types or unlikable, particularly Eleanor, whose consciousness we're most closely tied to, um, and Theo, who, you know, for a book written in the 1950s, is a queer bohemian. She lives with a woman. Um, Those characters feel so astoundingly real um, that when Eleanor starts being haunted by this house, you as a reader start feeling possessed by the house um you're so locked to her it's just like an astounding piece of writing and again that she pulled it off in 180 pages feels unreal so I feel like I have to make the case for reading The Haunting of Hill House because in the last decade or so people have really rediscovered this novel um, a famous Netflix series which is great by Mike Flanagan that sort of loosely takes off on it was made um and I think in all of that that's wonderful but sometimes then what I find is that people don't read the book because they feel like they already know the premise of the book. People in a scary house investigating the paranormal. Um, and, and you're really missing the experience of being put um, in that world in the most unsettling way. So and I think I have just a little bit of time left. I'm going to read from the beginning. It's, it's one of the most famous openings uh, of any novel. Um, 
No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself again. <laughs> I got to read part of the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> you did. And, and I think you, that was a lovely little tease of the beginning there and a wonderful pitch as well thank you so much thank you both for those um now i have read haunting of hill house and i am one of those people emily that that came to it quite recently um you know i didn't read it to study it i actually watched a film with um the wonderful elizabeth moss in which was about Mm -hmm. shirley jackson it was her portraying shirley jackson Yeah, yeah shirley um and it made me think, oh, I haven't read much Shirley Jackson. And then a colleague of mine said that Haunting of Hill House was like poetry, like amazing poetry. Um, and and so I read it. And exactly as you said, I just sort of fell in love with it. I couldn't put it down. I was really sucked in. Um, and so lots of things that you were saying there in that pitch, I was like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, me too. Um <laughs> Well, Ingo, I, I don't know of Adrian uh, Nicole LeBlanc, and I don't know of this book, Random Family, but um, wow, it sounds brilliant. I, I wasn't expecting what you were saying in that pitch, actually, and the more you were talking, the more I thought, oh, this just sounds fascinating. The thing that got me the most, I think, is like the fact that she got them to record themselves. Yes. And then transcribed that voice yeah and i think it's just the most incredible tool um for any author but also for journalists the fact that you hear directly from the people you are covering rather than trying to put your own spin on it and that's why it's just it's just such a tour de force honestly um yeah it's again it's absolutely unputdownable when i first got it i it's very very long um i don't know how many pages i think it's about 300 pages but very small text i just couldn't <laughs> put it down i read it over like two days constantly wow I mean, yeah, it just... Convince just... me. I, 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 yeah, I will, yeah. Read it and I will absolutely <laughs> yes, be reading good. it. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. No question. I think it's fair to say, I, maybe I'm wrong here, but I think it would be fair to say it's like, that's the sort of book I would not find myself and I wouldn't pick up. Now, Shirley Jackson, on the other hand, like, y- you would come to it, perhaps, Emily, because people talk about her and she is, you know, regarded in literature and, you know, it is a famous book in fact what you yeah, said I think about, that's absolutely true yeah. yeah yeah and what you said about you know before you read it you felt like it was a bit of a cliche but actually she invented the cliche which yeah, I just yeah, think is yeah. so brilliant because that's true <laughs> oh, um, that's why yeah <laughs> yeah you got oh right no wonder I think I've heard this before because okay it all comes from this <laughs> but I oh I, I did love the haunting of hill house when I read it and I thought that your pitch for it was absolutely wonderful i'm absolutely intrigued by random family now inga um for all the reasons that you said so i've got to pick one to take home and the winner of the book off is gonna be random family (laughs) i think i think we need to maybe celebrate a bit of the underdog here in this one um i think it sounds absolutely fascinating but i would say as i'm sure you would emily you've got to read haunting a hill house right oh yes 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, yes, I'm, I'm glad that you picked Random Family and not that it matters <laughs> what my feelings are. I'm glad. But I think, um, I, I think it's, it's a weird book where there was a period not that long ago where people really weren't reading Jackson. And now there's been, like I said, in the last decade, this kind of Jackson resurgence and everybody's like, mm. oh, of course, The Haunting of Hill House. Um, but now that kind of legend of her is so big that I'm like, are people still not actually reading the book? <laughs> you know, they're just, exactly. uh, yeah, right. No, I know who she, you know, I'm like, but you got to read the book right the book is the thing so <laughs> you're so right don't don't just watch a netflix series or whatever get to the books get to the heart of the oh, prose yes. um, and you're and you're so right with the the 180 pages i mean it flies by and you sort of just can't believe that you've had a whole story in that time and inga thank you for bringing random family to our attention i am absolutely gonna be reading this book I, i've already noted it down and it's on the big long list of books that i'll be ordering from bookshop.org very well, soon thank you so much for two it i really think it's you you'll love it you absolutely will if you like my book then you will love random family <laughs> <laughs> and that book is the long long afternoon by inga vesper it's out now from manila press and plain bad heroines by emily m danforth is also out now and it's published by borough press and we recommend both of those wholeheartedly because they are absolutely brilliant reads and i very much enjoyed both of them this week uh, Emily Inga, been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 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 Mm